You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, good morning. My name is Jace Williamson. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Would love to welcome you uh, and uh, open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. And uh, I want to reiterate something that Chris stated uh, about thankfulness for this past week. Uh, The sacrifices of those who came and worshipped with us uh, uh, with uh, the family night. I call that a worship service, getting to celebrate our kids. Uh, But uh, also serving our kids and our church through VBS and VBX. But there's one thing that Chris didn't mention. The songs that are ingrained into your mind forever... For eternity, that happened at VBS. What a week. The twist and turns. Anybody like dream that uh, this week? Okay, that wasn't just me. All right, great. So that's one of the sacrifices of those people uh, that get to listen to that song about 150,000 times over the, over the span of one week. Uh, but Pastor Mike is not here, obviously. Uh, he will not be teaching over the next three weeks. And uh, I, I just want to... Uh, point you to something for just a moment. Uh, Your pastor works really hard. Do you know that? I will say this. If if pastoring was just about crafting sermons, it would be one of the easiest jobs in the world. But it's not. It's so much more. And uh, your pastor is going to get three weeks off to not teach and not preach. And what I would like for you to do is I would love for you to just pray for him daily, that he would have rest for his soul, not just rest from his job. You, and you know the difference. Uh, and so pray for Pastor Mike, uh, and uh, as, as they're making their way back from, from Branson, and I did take the over on Griff's crying, if you're, if you're wondering, by the way. Uh, and so, um, but let's stand and uh, read Psalm chapter 1 together, as we have done through this series, and read along with me. If you don't have the ESV version, it'll be behind me on the screen. Uh, And so let's read together. It says this. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. You may be seated. In 1969, the singer by the name of Peggy Lee, which may, you may know that name, I didn't before this week, recorded a song by the name of Is That All There Is? Yeah, I just showed my age, didn't I? Yeah, it's okay. It's all right. She tells about being taken to a circus. And this circus was called The Greatest Show on Earth. But as she watched, she, quote, had the feeling something was missing. 
I don't know what, but it was, when, it, when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? Later in the song, she's talking about how she fell in love. And the man that she fell in love with broke her heart. And even in the bliss of romance, in the depths of her pain, when she reflected back, she says, is that all there is to love? At every turn, everything that should have delighted her and satisfied her did not. Nothing was big enough to fill her expectations for her desires to be met. Everything left her asking, is that it? And in the song, the only time she sings is this refrain. She says, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. And here's what I respect about Peggy Lee, my newfound singer friend, okay? Most people would, de- would be in deep denial about the depths of their discomfort, about the depths of their discontent, because we have so much to distract ourselves with, right? We have vacations, we have shows, we have sports, we have all these things that we attend our minds to to really keep us away from our discontent. But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, and I would love for you to be honest with yourself, if you ask your question to yourself, underneath the surface of life, underneath the cycles of getting more, achieving more, experiencing more, consuming more, is there a little voice that's saying, like Peggy Lee, is that all there is? By the way, the Bible would affirm what Peggy Lee is saying. Okay, one of, the, one of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, it's not the only book of the Bible. If it was the only book of the Bible, it would be a problem, okay? But it's one of my favorites because it grounds you, right? Because do you know what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 4 to 10? I'm going to read just a few verses here. He says this, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I, and I planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers. Maybe one of them was Peggy Lee. I don't know. And the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom, my wisdom stood by me. And this is the key verse, verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Think about this for just a second. What is he struggling with? What is he wrestling with, the writer of Ecclesiastes? It's not just meaninglessness. It's the disappointment of getting everything your heart desires and it still doesn't fulfill you. Nothing that he thought would bring satisfaction actually did the trick. And so this is, a very, this is a very human problem, right? This is the Bible, by the way. 
The Bible has an acute way of, of pinpointing the human condition. And, and there's plenty of research that backs up this idea that there is a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. Yet there are many of you that would say this morning, despite the evidence, despite the testimonies of miserable billionaires and millionaires, that if that was me, I would, I would finally I would finally be satisfied. I would be content. You know, when you think about our ancestors just two, three, four generations behind us, they had less freedoms than we do. They had less choices. They had way less experiences. Most didn't travel outside of their county. They had way less technology. Yet if you were to do a happiness check, would you say that they're more satisfied than us? If suicide and depression is any, any cause, any, any uh, you know, indicator of how we're doing, I would say that we're not doing too well. Tim Keller says it this way, and by the way, I get three times to quote Tim Keller. That's what I'm limiting myself to today, all right? So just deal with it, all right? He says, if we stand back, to ask what we've learned about happiness over the centuries, it is striking to see our lack of progress. So if I could uncover a problem for us today, just uncover something that we need to feel at a deep level, is that many of us are in a crisis of contentment. We have everything our hearts desire, yet we can't find the it. The it. So what do we do with that? Again, Timothy Geller talks about this, and he says that you can either live life assuming the it is out there. Like, it's there, I just got to go discover it. Or you can believe that there's just simply no it. Like, it doesn't exist. So for some of you, True satisfaction, true contentment is out there to be seized. If I just remove that obstacle, if I get a better job, if I get a better house, if I get a better spouse, if I get a, 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 a boat that I can wakeboard behind, man, that's it. And some of you would say, you know what? I've lived long enough to know that satisfaction is just not possible. Anybody that says they're content is faking it. And so what you do is you turn cynical. You turn to detachment. You say, you know what? I'm a cynic because those, that joy that you feel is not really real. Or I'm just going to lower my expectations because no one has joy and everything is fake. This idea of detachment was, was given to us by the Stoics. If you know what a Stoic is, it's a, it's a philosophy of life. And what they said was, if you love too hard, that's your problem. So what you need to do is, this is an actual quote from a Stoic, by the way. It says, what harm is there while kissing your child to murmur softly, tomorrow you will die? So lower your love, right? Diminish your love so you don't get disappointed. What worldview can handle the disappointments and the desires for love that we have? What story can we enter into that can feel the feelings that we need to feel while actually being in reality. And I'm going to hopefully propose to you that that's the Christian story. 
That's the Christian story that we can enter into because there has to be a better way. Those who believe that satisfaction is possible, you believe that. You, you would sit there and go, you know what? I believe that satisfaction and contentment is possible. Let me ask you, are you content? Are you satisfied? And for those who believe it isn't, let me ask you, where are you looking? Where's your joy? Because here's what the Bible would say. The very beginning, what we read, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And this word, we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But this word is more than just God bless you. It's a deep satisfaction and contentment. It's the possibility. It is the, excuse me, the promise that flourishing is a possibility. So let's talk about Psalm 1 for just a second. This psalm is what is classified as a Torah psalm. It gives a nod, maybe you saw it, to the law of the Lord. Okay, this is what would be called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But this psalm is seen by many scholars as the wicked gate to the entire book of Psalms. James Boyce, who's a great scholar to look at, his, his uh, term for Psalm 1 is, he says this is, it's the father of all wisdom psalms. This psalm is not so much, if you notice, it's not so much a praise. He's not really praising God. He's not really asking God for anything. But there's a lot of instruction here, right? And what this psalm does is it helps us be prepared to enter in to the next 150 uh, chapters of the psalms themselves. And I will argue today that it actually helps us enter in to the Christian life itself. And so what we see on the surface is that Psalm 1 builds a contrast of two ways of life. This is how I want you to think about Psalm 1. Not necessarily this idea of, of God telling me to do something, but rather a way that I'm living, a way that I'm walking, okay? And so think about this. There's the, the, the psalm, uh, this psalm is building on a contrast of two ways of life. And, and you can see this. It's a, lot of a, a lot of them are on the title of, of this actual chapter. It says the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. And, and notice, notice that this is a fairly common way that the Bible presents two ways of life. Okay, think about the book of Proverbs for just a second. We went to the book of Proverbs last summer, and you would know that if you followed along, there's two ways that the Bible is saying, this is the way to life, lady wisdom. This is the way to death, lady folly. Jesus does the same thing in his famous sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. There's two ways, the narrow way or the wide way, building your house upon the sand or building your house upon the rock. These are not just like, hey, I'm making this, this decision today, and therefore I get to move on. This is a way of living your life. And so here, the contrasts are very clear. If you, if you just walk down this chapter, okay, the contrasts are clear. The first one is there's a luscious, sturdy, fruitful tree versus a, a dried, movable, throwaway chaff, rootless chaff. There's a plethora of wicked people versus a singular righteous person. There's the advice of sinners versus the law of the Lord. 
And so what, what this psalm is trying to get us to do is, one seminary professor said it this way, Psalm 1 deliberately draws two portraits in our minds. The portrait of the wicked man and the portrait of the wise man. And then this question is posed, which I want you to consider this morning. Which one are you? As we enter into the sanctuary of the Psalms to worship and petition the Lord, whose side are we on? So as we look at the beginning of this psalm, you'll see that this word, uh, this is a very common, like, churchy word that, you, that you're hit with right at the beginning. And that's the word blessed or blessed, depending on how you pronounce it. And, and I believe that to properly understand this psalm, we have to understand this word. Okay, most translators would maybe translate this as happy. Maybe you've heard it that way. But honestly, what happy does is barely scratch the surface of what this psalm is trying to get at. And even if you translated blessed in the, in the Sermon on the Mount as happy, it really doesn't get you there. And Jonathan Piddington, who is a professor at uh, the Southern Baptist Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, did a whole lot of work on this word. And uh, I will not bore you with the details, Okay. Uh, that's what I'm up here to try to like, here's the meat of what we're saying here. He talks about how this word is often thought about this divine favor that's given to us like, hey, God bless you. It's coming down from above. But really what this blessing is, is this idea of flourishing, flourishing. It's really getting at deep satisfaction, deep contentment, And this idea of walking in the right direction in the way that God has created us to walk. So think about it this way, okay? If someone handed you, let's say that this Bible, for the the, um, example, is a game, okay? Like Candyland, okay? Someone hands you, you don't know how to play, okay? Someone hands you this, and you say, here, go play this game. What would the the first thing that you would do uh, be? You would look at the rules, right? You would say, okay, how do we play this game? Okay? Some of you, like, uh, you know, like rebels would be like, I'm making my own rules. Let's go. Okay? I'm slapping this little piece off the board. That's how we're playing. Okay? And so, but you would say, okay, if everybody wants to be cohesive, if everybody wants to, to walk the same way, we would all abide by the same idea, the same, the strategy of the game. All right? And this is the way that God has created us. God has created the world and designed us to walk a certain way. And when we walk a certain way, what do we find? Well, the Bible would say that you would find delight. You would find joy. You would find satisfaction. You would find flourishing. And so think about this in the sense of God's law. God is not giving us the Ten Commandments and going, you know what? You know what I really want is I want these people not to be happy. So I'm going to tell them that they can't steal. I'm going to tell them that they can't commit adultery. That's why, because I'm a joy stealer. No, God is giving us laws not only to help us love him more, but to walk in alignment with him. And when we walk in alignment with him, that's satisfaction. That's joy. So think about this for just a moment. God has revealed a way of life that aligns with what we were created to do. When we walk in this way, there's joy contentment, and flourishing. Pennington says it this way, Psalm 1 is giving us an inspirational vision for the wise way of being in the world that will result in what all humans desire, human flourishing. This is the it we're talking about. 
And here at the beginning of this psalm, we see that the only way to true flourishing, the blessed man, is not seeking outward satisfaction through uh, accumulation, but by aligning himself properly with the creator God. And one thing I will point out is you cannot, cannot flourish if you are not in a relationship, a proper relationship with the creator God through Jesus Christ. That is basic level Christianity. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see that there is a true way, a way to truly flourish. And that way is through delighting in what we were made for, God himself. So here at the beginning, he cuts through the person searching for contentment, satisfaction. It's right here. It's not out there. It's not discoverable. It's right there. And he's cutting through those people that say it's not a thing. No, he's saying it's here. But how? How? You'll see some contrasts in these texts, right? And one of the contrasts is the wicked and the righteous, like we've pointed out. And as you read the description of the righteous, you're met with what they do not do. Okay, so it says, how blessed is a man who does not. And he starts to list out some things. And there's this, prog- there's this description of this progressive downward spiral, spiral of, the, of the result of rebelling against God himself, a.k.a. Sin. So walk with me here, right? The first thing you see is there's a counsel, there's a way or a path, and then there's a seat. Notice that this moves from sinful advice to sinful behavior. That you're walking in this counsel going, you know what? That does sound like a good idea. It does sound right. So I'm going to keep on going down there, and then you eventually find yourself seated with these people. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But this idea is, I am doing what they are doing. Next, you see this idea of the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. The wicked is a term, a broad use of, of a term to saying rebelling against who God, uh, God is and his way. But a scoffer is someone who is openly mocking God's way. And lastly, you see the walking, the standing, and the sitting. This goes, this goes from where you're walking the same route as the sinful path to someone who's sitting there. And this idea of sitting is the same way that the reason why people got mad at Jesus for sitting with prostitutes and sinners. Why? Because they said, now that person belongs with them. He's identifying himself with those people. This is the term he's using that you now identify yourself with sinners. And if I could sum up biblically what is happening here, it's Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Here is what this is is talking about. When you are not walking in the revealed way that God has presented, what you're doing is you're self-defining. You're saying this is the way. I know the way. It's the self-definement. And this is the temptation for every human being. Give me what I desire. The person that seeks their own way, that seeks their own path, that seeks their own happiness, their own satisfaction, their own contentment from the world around them will end up in their own destruction. And you see this picture of consequences of flourishing and destruction in two word pictures 
a tree and chaff. The Bible says that here is what a flourishing person is like. A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is going to sound weird, but I married into a tree family. My wife loves trees, discipled by her father to love trees, okay? And I was weird the first time that I, and they would just like talk about them and like look at them. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And so when I, when my wife introduced me to hiking, all right, I'm like not a hiker, all right? I'm more of like, let's see how fast we can do this, okay? But one of the things my wife, beautiful wife, said, told me to do is you got to stop and look at things. Okay, great. All right, so that tree's green, that tree's green, that plant's not green. Okay, uh, let's go faster. No, but here's, what, here's what's happened, okay? Uh, one of the things that she has discipled me into, into, into viewing and really looking at is the beauty of trees, we got to go into the Smoky National Park this summer, and we were driving through the national park, and there was this river that was running through the mountains. And you would see these gorgeous, flourishing trees that were planted right next to the stream, unlike any other environment that I've ever been in. And what I love about Psalm chapter 1 is it doesn't take much imagination to view what God is trying to get us to see. But the only thing that I will point out is that a tree planted by a stream was not normal for them to see. Was not normal. But the metaphor is absolutely beautiful, Beautiful, right? You see this true flourishing, this true contentment, this true happiness. This, this tree is firmly planted by this stream, and it doesn't matter what external circumstances around it, there's, there's fruit, it will not wither, and it matters holistically what you are rooted in. That's the point. Because one of the major mistakes of modern happiness is that it's attached to earthly, temporal things and circumstances. And we think that happiness and contentment and satisfaction is found in the externals of life, the money, the success, fill in the blank, the experiences, the relationships, the achievements. But here, the blessed person is like a tree that's rooted in a source of nourishment beyond self-sufficiency. Beyond the externals. Because notice this. The psalmist is not naive or unaware of the environmental shifts surrounding the tree itself. When the heat comes, when the drought comes, when the environment and the circumstances change, the root system is what? It's constant. It's consistent. And no matter what's going on outside of this tree... The heat, the drought, the wind, the rain, the roots stay sturdy. This, this tree bears fruit consistently. The leaf doesn't wither because you're planted into something greater than yourself. Church, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's not just being a nice person. It's not being a good person. It means that you're fundamentally planted and rooted into a greater power than yourself. 
Paul would talk about this in Colossians 2 and Ephesians 3. He says in Colossians 2, he says, Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. You see, many of us can't find satisfaction, can't find contentment because we are planted in a a soil that is not meant for us to give nourishment, to get nourishment. And here's what I'll say, okay? Because you know what's one of the most normal things in the world? Suffering. It's normal. Like affliction and suffering is the most normal thing. And what this psalm is saying is this tree feels affliction. It feels hurt. It never withers. Wouldn't you like that? Because here's something that probably 25-year-old Jace is not, wasn't able to teach or preach or give testimony to that I can now. That in the midst of suffering and hurt, the roots go deep. And it's not often that you feel, until you feel the heat, until you feel the drought, that you're, that you're going, all right, I need something. I have to go deeper. I have to, because there's nothing out here. Peter would talk about this in 1 Peter uh, 1.6. The tension here. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Notice that he's not going, hey, you used to rejoice and now you're distressed. He's going, you're doing both. You're doing both. Concurrently, you're doing both. How do you do that? I'll tell you how. You're like a tree planted by a river. If you hear one thing, your roots cannot be, cannot be in anything that's temporal. They cannot be in anything that's circumstantial. They must be in something that's wholly other. You know, there's, there's some Christians that in, in the best of time, or in the you know, their hearts are, are right in this. But they say things like when bad things happen and tragedies occur and hard st- circumstances arise, they'll say like, you know what? You just need to smile and praise God and don't let it bother you. Church, let me just tell you, that's wholly unbiblical. It's not even human. Because you know what biblical grief looks like? It looks a lot like what the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That, that you, you can be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. You can be per- perplexed, but not driven to despair. You can be persecuted, but not forsaken. You can be struck down, but not destroyed. Do you know why? Because verse, four, verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Let me just say, if you're in this, in this rut and the heat and the drought of life is just beaming down on you this morning, 
let me just gently ask, is this the way of God extending your root system? Let me just ask again, very gently, if affliction is leading you to despair, if persecution is leading you to feel like you're forsaken, that may be God's way of saying your roots are in something else. Because here's what God may be doing in your life right now. He's causing all the externals, all the false grips, all the circumstances of false sense of control to release so that your roots can be firmly planted in him. Timothy Keller again, I told you three times, right? Happiness is not about controlling your environment, but by controlling your allegiances. You see, the chaff can't do this. It can't. It's physically impossible to be chaff and rooted. See, chaff is referring to an agricultural thing. I think I brought a picture with me so you can get a visual understanding, okay? The chaff is on the left, by the way, okay? And when, what you would do with chaff, okay, th- this chaff is in direct contradiction to what a tree is. It's rootless. It has no anchor. It has no way of enduring anything. Wind takes it away. But the grain consisted of two parts. And notice that they look similar, similar in form. On the one hand, you had the internal kernel on the right side. You had the life itself, the organic part of the grain. It had more substance. But because it was heavier, it would fall to the ground. And the chaff was this husk around the the kernel. If I could speak Texan for just a moment, it's the corn husk that you see on Highway 5. Okay? They're just blowing in the wind. It's the sleeve. It was lighter. And here's what it was used for. Absolutely nothing. Is useless. The wind would blow it away. Do you see the difference here? To be fundamentally wicked, when we're talking about being wicked, it's not just in what you do. That's the fruit. It's who you are. The fruit of the wicked is in what they do, but the core is who you are found to, to have your allegiance to. It's your submission. And the chaff in this scenario, if we go back to the verse 1, the chaff in this scenario, who, is the, who do they submit to? Themselves. I define my way. I define who I am. I define how I flourish and what's success and all of that. You see, the chaff in this scenario is a life lived apart from the power of God. It is to live a life in self-definition, self-praise, and is this not the way that our culture tells us to live? It's not found in self-definition. It's not found in self-defined freedoms or the pursuit of desires. See, true flourishing begins with what you are delighting in. Where do you find your joy? This is what's found in verse uh, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. One of the things that C.S. Lewis speaks about uh, is that happiness is never found directly. So if you're coming to church this morning, you know, I got to be a happier person. I got to have joy. So this is where I'll find it. It's never found directly. So if you're coming to God to say, make me happy, God, what you're saying is God is my butler, and he's giving me what I really want. 
but you know how you approach God. Approaching God is a lot like this. God created all things. I rebelled against him. I now owe him everything. I owe him everything because here in the middle, it tells us exactly what we're supposed to submit to, exactly what we're supposed to delight in, and that's the law of the Lord. Now, I know what you're probably thinking about this term. When we think law, we think God's rules, right? Like, why in the world would we just delight in uh, the command not to steal? That doesn't really warm my heart at night, right? But here's what this term is really getting at. Remember, this is, a, this is a Torah psalm. So he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. If you think about the first five books of the Bible, it, it's, it's God's revealed way of life. Okay, you think about uh, the way that God has revealed his people to live and the story of God's covenant love and deliverance. So if I was to define what the law of the Lord is, it's the essential message of the Bible itself. So what does it mean to delight in something? The externals are easy to see, right? You go to a Cowboys game, and you're like, these people are delighting in another interception, okay? It's just what it is. But you think about, okay, think about what you delight in. The one way to, say, one way to see it is what do you dream about? What do you think about? What do you sacrifice for? Because underneath, to delight in something means we place the weight of our soul in this thing. And because there's a huge difference between loving your spouse and making your spouse the center of your love. There's a huge difference between loving your job and making the job the center of your life. Because here's, at the center of this, it's what centers you, it's what grounds you, it's what roots you. That's what you delight in. And so if I was to say, how do we do this? How do we delight in the law of the Lord? How do we meditate on it day and night? What you're doing is you're rehearsing the story of the gospel, the position that is yours in Christ Jesus, day and night. That's what you're rehearsing. Think about that term, rehearse, that you're thinking about it, that you're playing it back. You see, the gospel story is this, that there is a faithful God that created you for a purpose that we rebelled against, and he loves this faithless people, and he sends his faithful son to die on a cross for you, to love you supremely so that you could be bought back as a child of God with him and dwell with him for eternity. And what we see constantly through scripture is a faithful God who loves you, a God that sends his son, and a God that calls you child. If we were to put it in a story, it would be Luke 15, the prodigal son, the son that comes back and says what? You know, hey, I have this plan. I have this talk that I'm going to give to my father. I'm a servant. I'll pay back my debts. But when he comes back to the father, what does the father say? Let's party it up. My son is back. He doesn't say, let's hold on, hold the applause. What do you have to give me? He says, my son is home. Let's throw the ring on his finger. Let's kill the fatted calf and let's party. You see, what you delight in, the roots that you have down deep into the never-ending stream is that through Christ. The king is your father and you are his child. And if you have your root system in that stream, no external circumstances can touch that. 
And you meditate on this day and night, rehearsing this in the good times and the bad, that my circumstances can change, that suffering will come, but my status doesn't. And as soon as you trust Christ, your position changes. It says that you're planted. This idea is transplanted right by a stream. It says this is where you live. And this is so beautiful, right? Because the beginning of the Bible starts with a tree and a stream, and the end of the Bible starts with a tree and a stream. You see this? Revelation 22, this is how the story ends. This is the reality for all Christians. It says in verse 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystals, flowing from the throne of God, the pure source. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Listen to this last verse. And night will be no more. They will need no light nor, or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. When we are transplanted from the dry circumstances that we live in by a stream, we are experiencing the eternal now. The eternal now. And kingdom people that are living in Christ are able to go, you know what? My circumstances can change. Affliction can, can come. I can lose my job. I can get the diagnosis call. And guess what? My roots are here. My roots are here. And so as Keegan comes up, I want to go back. Do you feel the ache? If you would look around and you'd be really honest with yourself that everything in your life is like pretty good but you would you would say like old Peggy Lee is this it? is this it? if you're a Christ follower do you still feel this ache and if the question is, why is that? If your reality is in Christ, why do you still feel this? Do you know how to rehearse the beauties of the gospel to yourself? One of the things that's at the end of this psalm is that the Lord knows the righteous. It's not that he knows who they are. It's that he knows what you need. He cares for you, and he knows you intimately. Here's what I want to do as we close, as we respond. I would love to give you some language to be able to rehearse the beauties of the gospel to yourself. Can I do that? Some of you are like, I don't know how to do that. I, I just want to read off about 10 things from the scriptures that are yours in Christ Jesus this morning. So get into a posture where you can really listen, not to me, to the, to the Spirit of God. And if there's one thing that really, like, I need to dive down deep into that, listen, listen. The Scriptures say this, I am a beloved child of God. 
I am a friend of Jesus. I have been justified and redeemed. My old self was crucified with Christ. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am no longer condemned. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me. I am a new creation in Christ. I am redeemed and forgiven by the grace of Jesus. I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. God supplies all my needs. The peace of God guards my heart and my mind. God loves me and has chosen me. There's an invitation this morning. Some of you could not say those things. Did you know that you can? That Christ is knocking at the door and a response to him looks like this. Jesus, I owe you everything. I love you supremely. And I wanna walk on the path of flourishing, which is closeness with you, which is giving my allegiance to you, knowing that satisfaction is not found here, that I was made to love you and to love you supremely. That can be your prayer this morning. Come to him. He knows you and loves you. If you need to respond by just sitting here and listening to these words, we're about to sing a great song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. If you need to just sit there and reflect upon the I am statements that we just said, do it. If you need to stand up and sing and praise God because of who you are in Christ, do that. But respond the way that you need to respond this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.